Hello everyone and welcome back to the History Hour. I'm your host and guide Blaine and today we're going to do a very special episode on the new discoveries of William Grandstaff. So I have a very special guest with me, Miss Mary Langworthy from the Moab Museum. Hi Blaine, happy to be here. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming. This is going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> um, so Mary worked very hard with coordinating a lot of uh, influential people that uh, really they all put their heads together to basically solve kind of one of the biggest mysteries in our history here. So I'm just kind of let Mary here uh, kind of take over for a second and tell us what they have been working on over there at the museum. Sure. So for the past couple of years, I've been working to convene several folks who care a lot about the history of William Grandstaff. If you live in Moab, you may have heard this name. He was an early settler of this region and a black cowboy who ran cattle in the canyon that we now call Grandstaff Canyon. And his story has always been a little bit <clears throat> mysterious, like you were saying. There's always been a lot of unknowns. He's kind of been the subject of a lot of mystery, legend, lore, uh, myth over the years. And... We've been fortunate as a community to have some new research come to light. Um, I've worked over the past couple of years with a musician and opera composer named Jerry Elias, who got interested in Grandstaff's story and composed an opera about him. Um, oh, that's, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it uh, debuted in 2014 at the Moab Music Festival, oh, and then okay. they played it again this past, uh, a few weeks ago, actually, nice. um, at the music festival again. And he really got captivated by Grandstaff's story and dove into a lot of research and then connected with... Uh, Nick Sheedy, the lead genealogist of the PBS show Finding Your Roots, mm. who is an expert in particularly the history and genealogy of Black Americans. It's often very hard to trace due to scant records. And um, those two really dove deep into Grandstaff's story. So we've got a lot of fresh new insights about um, where he came from and what his life was like before and after his time in Moab. Nice. So how long is that exhibit going to be at the museum for? Yeah, so we have an exhibit that opened September 1st, and it'll be up through early November. Awesome. Yeah, I had a chance of uh, looking at that and highly recommend checking that out. Um, there's some really good visuals and some really... Uh, uh, nice things to read and you know i really hate that there's no picture of william grant <laughs> <laughs> me like, too there's no picture of the man um it's you know um you know just like you, well the poster that 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 i made you know for yeah. this episode um just a silhouette because that's basically kind of who he was that's kind of like who he is and our history is he's just he's always been like a silhouette so i feel like now we're we're getting more and more um, insight as to like where he came from, who he was, and like what happened to him. Absolutely, that's a really good analogy. Yeah, and it, that's everyone's first question. They're like, "Really, you don't have any pictures of him?" Yeah, and we've looked high and low, and maybe one day <laughs> something will turn up. Um, but that would be awesome. We haven't found it yet. 
maybe someday hopefully fingers crossed um yeah because i know you know guiding out here you know for years uh people uh we would start you know doing interp on on william grandstaff and and of course you know we're just like oh yeah you know he lived in that canyon right over there and it bears his name now and you know he got here etc cetera, etc cetera. and then they would just ask all these questions and we're like sorry we don't know <laughs> sorry we don't know mm-hmm. so this is absolutely fantastic you know uh one of the reasons why um i really wanted to do this episode was to get that in- that knowledge and that information um out there for maybe those you know who can't make it to the museum or something like that um or even people who are out of town for the season already and they're going to be mm-hmm. back in moab next season they'll be able to check this out and um, uh, get that information. So so basically, what do we have here? Like, where did he come from? <laughs> sure. Yeah. I To take it chronologically, um, based on the available records that we've been looking into and that, again, Nick Sheedy has been really instrumental in putting together, It seems that he was likely born in slavery in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. Mm. And there's a few different, a couple different um, lines of thinking that leads us to believe that. Mm. Basically, there's some discrepancies in the census records that have his name. Not terribly uncommon. Three of five U.S. census records cite Virginia as his birthplace. Mm -hmm. Um, There's two others that cite other states in the South. But uh, Nick Sheedy did a really thorough analysis of slaveholding individuals with the last name Grandstaff Mm -hmm. in Southern states and looked at the slave schedules of the U.S. Census, which were how the U.S. accounted for Black people held in slavery. Um, basically, slave schedules look like a long list of names of the enslavers, and then mm. uh, the age and gender and color of the people that they had were holding in slavery. So um, based on a thorough survey of all slaveholding families named Grandstaff and a look at the people held in slavery by those different people, there's really only one possible person, um, and that is a, a guy named George Grandstaff who lived in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia and had a couple of young male slaves who would have been the correct um, approximate age to be William Grandstaff. Hmm. So it really, this is one of those areas where having a genealogy expert um, Um, be able to weigh in is so helpful because you are cross-referencing a number of censuses and looking at these slave schedules and looking at all these sorts of documents that you know you and I certainly don't look at every day and don't Mm -hmm. don't have quite the eyes to draw those connections between them Mm -hmm. but um, based on Nick's analysis he thought it was um, quite likely that the William Grandstaff that shows up in Moab was the same William Grandstaff that um, was born in slavery in Virginia. Hmm. Do we have an idea as to how old he was when that census was taken? So um, there's two boys on the 
slave schedule that um, were about 12 or 16. Okay. And th- those are the first records of grand staff that appear. Okay. Um, and nailing down the exact birthday or age of William Grandstaff is really hard. Mm. And that's not at all uncommon for people of the time, particularly people born in slavery during yeah, that time. Right. So that's that's one of those things. Sometimes you'll look at two census records and be like, oh, but this one shows that he was two years older than this one. Can yeah. it be the same guy? Yeah. And yes, absolutely. The long and short of it is mm. that um, it's it's really hard to get a reliable sense mm-hmm. on age and birth year for yeah. people in Grand Staff's yeah. situation. Yeah, because it, and it's 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 terrible. But that was kind of like a, a huge thing, you know, when when uh, slavery was going on. Is you know they didn't really have like names, you know, according to on like on paper, it was just like descriptions, you know, because you know they were being sold like and multiple times during their life and so that was kind of like something that somebody would look at when they were interested in purchasing a slave they would sort of like look at it and be like oh, okay this guy's 16 um you know he's good at this probably you know this is a brief description of him he's strong um yeah etc cetera, etc cetera, you know absolutely and mm. even the surname grandstaff i think it surprises a lot of people that William Grandstaff would have ended up with the last name of the person enslaving him. Right. But that's really common yeah. at the time. Yeah. And mm-hmm. another one of those genealogical mm-hmm. insights that it's yeah. helpful to have an expert weighing in. Yeah, that sounds awesome. So so after, so basically we, we're assuming that he was uh, a slave in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, um, which... I'm from the Southeast and I've Mm. been to a lot of those old plantation homes and I've seen a lot of these old historical sites and stuff like that. And those conditions were absolutely just awful. I mean, slavery, their conditions, you know, I'd say about 90% Mm. of their conditions were just absolutely terrible. Um, But he didn't stay there. He didn't stay in Virginia, according to what we have found. Um, And it looks like he ended up somewhere else, according to the census. Am I correct? Indeed, yes. Um, And kind of one of the mysteries that's always been um, piquing people's interest about him is where did he live before Moab? Mm -hmm. And based on Nick Sheedy's research, it seems that he lived in a couple of different places, Mm -hmm. um, which again is kind of common um, Mm -hmm. for people in his demographic. It seems that he either escaped or got out of slavery in some way and was living in Cincinnati um, after Virginia. Mm. That's that's where we see a bunch of records with William Grandstaff's name on it. And again, this... um, there was a, a thorough survey of um, census records across the U.S. and kind of the one person with the correct um, approximate age and gender and race and all of that is the William Grandstaff that shows up in Cincinnati. And he shows up there um, just kind of before and as the Civil War is starting to happen, mm-hmm. um, meaning he, he got out of slavery before that, before emancipation. 
And um, there's, a, there's a lot of cool records from this time period. Um, this is a time when really the whole country was in serious upheaval, of course, mm. um, around the time of the Civil War. And basically we see record that he got married to someone named Isabella or Belle for short. Um, they had at least one kid. And we also see that he um, was a member of the Cincinnati Black Brigade, which is considered um, the first organized army regiment of black Americans to fight in the Civil War. Yeah. And that was a, um, a unit that was um, assembled to help defend Cincinnati against a anticipated Confederate attack. And he's in like the first regiment, Company A, and um, appears on the muster roll there, along with um, a bunch of other black men of about the same age. Hmm. Wow, that's, yeah, and, and yeah, and we'll talk about this here for a second, you know, because this, this black brigade, um, I was doing some research on on uh, these men and why, you know, mm. <laughs> like like what happened, and it wasn't it wasn't a beautiful start for them you know absolutely <laughs> it was kind of like you know um it looked like you know tensions were of course rising and then they thought that they were going to be a Cincinnati was going to be attacked from the confederates in um kentucky mm-hmm. and then all these black men were just forced out of their homes you know and were kind of sort of press ganged mm-hmm. into um fortifying uh, Cincinnati, and uh, according to what I what I found in research, the conditions were not were not great for them at all. They were being t- treated very very terribly by uh, mostly the Cincinnati police, who were the ones who had rounded them up initially. Yeah, like <laughs> that's terrible. Like, and they. So I'm gonna find this real quick one more time. Um, yeah, that's a fascinating little chapter in Grandstaff's story. And you raise a great point when we talk about, yes, he enlisted in this military unit. Yeah, that's true. But um, as you say, this regiment actually really started with people being forced into service by the police. The police really rounded up the black men of Cincinnati and said, hey, get to work. We're digging ditches. We're doing all this really hard, intense manual labor to help fortify the city. And then kind of after that, they um, ended up forming this regiment um, sort of as a response to being forced into service anyway. Um, And you're absolutely right. Conditions were really hard. And today there's um, a monument in Cincinnati that's uh, in the honor of the Black Brigade. Mm -hmm. And um, there's there's a couple books and um, the Black Brigade appears in a couple of um, documentaries and TV programs I've seen that uh, really... uh, flesh out the nuance that you're talking about and uh, the challenging conditions that Grandstaff and the other enlistees would have worked with. Yeah, you know, I mean, and it's a good thing that Wallace got, (laughs) because because Wallace actually put Colonel William N. Dickinson in charge. 
um, according to what I researched. And, um, and he let the, he let the seized men return to their homes. And he even announced for a new call of black volunteers to report the very next day. I gotta be honest, that would be extremely difficult for me. Like if I was in their shoes, you know, being treated like this and then I get to go home and they're like, Oh, by the way, if you want to come back to work tomorrow, Mm. I mean, I don't know if, if I'm going to be under the same conditions tomorrow as I was, you know, the past several months or weeks Mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, but they did. The Mm -hmm. men went right back to work and it was like, they, I guess they, they saw that vision of what the union army, you know, had. And, um, absolutely a really tumultuous tense time Mm -hmm. in Cincinnati. And Mm -hmm. I mean, imagining Grandstaff's life, like Mm -hmm. he's out of slavery in Virginia and like what a relief to be Mm -hmm. out of slavery, but still he comes to Cincinnati and is forced into service. Mm -hmm. Um, allegedly, I don't know, like with his freedom still experiencing, um, being forced into service. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so cool because, you know, on uh, September the 5th at 5 a.m., he was amongst 706 volunteers that reported, that reported Mm -hmm. back for duty at 5 a.m. Like, (laughs) and they were treated very, very well. They were given, um, they were given a soldier's pay, um, and they were able to go home at night and, they did a lot of a lot of really good work, a lot of services. Uh, what were some of the things that that they were uh, most likely being put to work at? You know, because I know they were doing a lot of uh, building a lot of roads and also uh, fortifying like near the Ohio River right there. Um, yeah, uh, based on my understanding, um, it was a lot of like infrastructure work, mm-hmm. ditches, roads. Um, shovels instead of guns Mm -hmm. um, sort of work that's really physically hard and exhausting and demanding um, and some of the most crucial um, work that Cincinnati thought that they needed at the time. You know, and I was reading one thing that said that they were working so hard and so fast uh, at some of these, at some of these roads towards Kentucky, that some of the Union soldiers thought that they were Confederate soldiers because they had gotten mm. so far away from them because they Whoa. were working that fast. That's and then they had to send a scout out, and the scout came back and was like, "Oh, that's just the, you know, that's just the Cincinnati Black Brigade right there." <laughs> wow. Like they got out of our sight because wow. they were that fast at working, mm. uh, which you know, and so basically, you know, the man. The man becomes a cowboy somehow. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. He um, stops showing up in records in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. Um, and in 1870, appears on a census record in Omaha, Nebraska. And this is sort of... There's so- some murky details and some reading between the lines that we do here. And in his analysis of the records, uh, genealogist Nick Sheedy made a, made a point that I thought was really interesting. Um, Grandstaff's wife, Isabella Grandstaff, starts to appear on the Cincinnati city directories as widowed. And 
Hmm. If I were looking at that, I would say, oh, widowed. I know what that means. Her husband died. William, that William Grandstaff is dead. Can't yeah. be our guy. Right. That shows up in Moab later. Um, but Shidi makes the point that uh, divorce or separation of a married couple um, or being left behind uh, as a wife would carry a lot of stigma at that time. Mm-hmm. And it would be easier to just say widowed than gotcha. to explain. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I thought that was a really interesting point and a, a neat yeah. genealogical insight. Mm-hmm. And um, since there is a, another William Grandstaff, the only William Grandstaff of the right age and the, the right um, race to be Moab's William Grandstaff mm-hmm. um, shows up in Omaha, is listed on the census as being a house servant, and he's living in a boarding house with a bunch of other um, single men of about his age um, of mm-hmm. different races. Uh, and that that's kind of what we have as a record of him um, in Omaha mm-hmm. at that time. Um, but then... Then the next the next time we see him is um, showing up on the census record here in Utah, huh. in our neck of the woods. You know, it's so interesting, you know, because you have to try to, th- you know, think about, um, you know, connecting these dots between Omaha, Nebraska and Moab, you know, because uh, obviously he had to learn the hand of ranching and working cattle and horses because you know, mm-hmm. you know um because that's something that slaves most likely weren't taught was how to work a horse you know <laughs> um mm-hmm. they were taught how to care for the horse most likely and uh but not you know how to operate and ride a horse and be a horseman um so i i I really like the idea that when we see him showing up on the census in Omaha, Nebraska, and it says he was a house servant, I feel like that there's the house servant might have been an umbrella of a lot of different things. You know, perhaps that was a ranch that he worked at, and that's where he sort of learned the cowboy trade, probably, you know? Um, Yeah, it's hard to say. And I mean, what... What we have when we do genealogical research it's is just... a collage of documents. Yeah. And we we draw lines between them. Mm-hmm. We can come up with some sort of timeline and mm-hmm. like framework of fact. But a lot of how we interpret that history today and add color and yeah. dimension to the silhouette Absolutely, is, yeah. is thoughts like that. Like, yeah. yeah, when did he learn how to run yeah. cattle? You know, was it, was it then? Like, Maybe when, then. Like, like, when did he meet Frenchie? <laughs> <laughs> Like, Another like when did he come across Frenchie and like, what's sure. that story? Cause I feel like that's a whole nother story right there of, of, of him and Frenchie also, but going back, I, I wanted to make a point, you know, um, a lot of, uh, I, I was doing some research and I found that a lot of guys that wanted after the civil war that wanted to come West, um, a lot of times their wives didn't want to come with them, you know, case in point right here in our own, um, history, John Wesley Wolf. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't come out here till like decades after the Civil War. Yeah. And that's because he was um, asking his wife for years and years and years to come west. And she was like, absolutely not. You know, and so finally he said, 
I got to go. And he gets to Moab in 1898, you know, and, and he was already in his late 60s at that point. Mm. So it was just this huge itch for all these men to go west. And yeah, a lot of times their wives didn't want to come with them. So, and unfortunately, you know, uh, they were left behind. It seems, um, according to uh, these these documents here, it seems that maybe that was something that happened between um, William Grandstaff and Miss Bell. Yeah. So hard to say what the dynamic was, but mm-hmm. I think that's a really a really neat reference to um, the the Wolf family because mm-hmm. indeed um, the West had this lore and promise uh we know we know it wasn't guaranteed but uh Mm -hmm. in the idea of wealth or Mm -hmm. uh solitude or whatever one was seeking could Mm -hmm. be found out here there was a strong draw for um particularly for people in grandstaff's boat um young and born um, in the East and seeking a fresh life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, like that's where you start after the Civil War, that's where you start seeing like the whole like idea of like, go West young man, you know, cause mm-hmm. they were, I mean, it was like, and a lot of these Cowboys were Civil War veterans, mm-hmm. you know, that even, even a lot of the guys that helped settle this town, you know, um, and explorers out here um, after the Civil War, you know, we've got we've got Mr. Powell, you mm-hmm. know, who was a Civil War veteran, and uh, guys like this, you know, who were out here doing stuff after the Civil War, and so it's pretty cool to see that William Grandstaff sort of um, did did that. Mm-hmm. So, so tell me, um, so so let's talk about his Moab days, you know, because now it sure. seems like the story has led us right here to Moab. Yeah. Uh, so. so William Grandstaff shows up in the Moab Valley around 1877. And he apparently was traveling with and settling here with a companion we call Frenchie. Mm-hmm. We don't know his full name. Right. Um, just, just that nickname. And these two men initially, um, kind of set up camp in the abandoned Elk Mountain Mission Fort. Mm-hmm. And that had been established about 20 years prior by, a LDS mission sent from Salt Lake mm-hmm. that, um, just lasted a couple months mm-hmm. and then was abandoned due to violent conflict, um, with the native residents mm-hmm. of this area. So Grandstaff and Frenchie kind of set up camp in this abandoned building. Um, Grandstaff's also credited with uh, making one or two of the old stone buildings at today's Moab Springs Ranch property. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the Taylor Homestead. Mm-hmm. Um, and that makes a lot of sense. It's There's a wonderful spring back there, so that would have been a great place to to be. And it was right close to where the Elk Mountain Mission Fort was. Mm -hmm. And Grandstaff then ran cattle in the canyon that we call Grandstaff Canyon today. And if you've ever hiked it, you know that there's a lovely stream that Mm -hmm. runs most most times of the year. And um, that would have been a great place to graze. There's the natural containment of the canyon walls, lush greenery, uh, comparatively. Mm 
and um, he he ran cattle there. And then um, around 1881, um, there's there's a stream into the valley of other settlers, um, yeah. Euro-American, mm-hmm. uh, some LDS, some not LDS, mm-hmm. um, looking to make a home and ranch here. Right. And it's also a time when we're seeing escalating tensions between um, indigenous residents and um, settlers who are coming here mm. and um, using the land and the resources. And um, this, this is where we don't have have hard records to, to say, mm-hmm. and we're instead um, looking at oral histories and stories that have been a part of this region's history for a long time. Mm-hmm. But basically, um, as the story goes, Grandstaff was kind of run out of town due to allegations of giving the Native people alcohol, which angered a lot of settlers. Um, and again, it's really impossible to substantiate or refute those rumors mm-hmm. this many years later but yeah. that's that's the story we've got and in yeah. any way he left in a hurry <clears throat> yeah got out of here got out of here um you know so i want to i can't stop thinking about those two buildings so mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> those two buildings um i thought the moab springs ranch near the old taylor homestead right there um do we believe that he lived in those buildings and then ran cattle into the Grand Staff Canyon? Or do we believe that he lived in the Grand Staff Canyon at one point? Because I've, I mean, because you know how when there's a lot of, you know, mystery in the history, a mm-hmm. lot of people will just sort of come up with stuff. Um, and this is just something that I just want to mm-hmm. get clear because, you know, a lot of guides out there are under the inclination of believing that he lived in Grand Staff Canyon. Um, but then we have these two buildings near that spring. Um, so I'm under the inclination that possibly him and Frenchie had to, that they were living in those buildings and then just running cattle because I know that he did put up a fence at the mouth of Grand mm-hmm. Staff Canyon. I had I had heard about that and that makes a lot of sense. It'll keep them contained in that, you know, that huge box canyon right there. Um but yeah, I think I'm um, I'm going to uh, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? I don't know. I wish <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could say something that would clear that up definitively. Right, yeah. Um <clears throat> I think that's that's something that I've I've heard interpretations on either side of. Right. Um and if you look at how uh, running cattle works. I mean, you don't need to be there with them holding their hands, their exactly. hooves all the time, you know? Exactly. Um, they can kind of do their own thing. Mm-hmm. So if there was some sort of containment, then they could have hung out there and yeah. Grand Staff could have been in the Moab Valley. Yeah. And um, I'm unclear. I mean, I've, right. I've heard stories on both sides. Yeah. And I think that's one of those things that's hard to nail down and make. Yeah. Ma- Likely, um, often, you know, the truth is kind of in the, in the middle of mm-hmm. the two different stories. Yeah. Maybe sometimes he was hanging out near the cattle in the canyon and yeah. sometimes he was hanging out near the spring in the valley. Yeah. And, um, particularly in, in the last couple of years that he was living in Moab, there were 
there was an influx of settlers to the region. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And um, I imagine that would have changed the dynamic significantly, mm-hmm. having having more um, settlers around to interact with mm-hmm. probably would have played into uh, where he decided to live. Yeah, cool. We have Mary Langworthy in the studio here from the Moab Museum. And if you're just now tuning in, uh, we're talking about these new discoveries of William Grandstaff. And so right now in the part of the story, um, basically William Grandstaff is living in Moab and uh, ranching cattle uh, down the Grandstaff Canyon. And then we see in 1881 that he sort of gets out of town. Um, so yeah, we've got some other interesting stuff happening in 1881 as well um, that we can sort of make the assumption um, that probably led to him uh, leaving town. Um, but it's to say unsure because these are just mostly oral histories. Sure. Yeah. Um, also in 1881, around the time of Grandstaff's departure, is the Pinhook Battle. Um, this was a deadly conflict between native residents of the region and Euro-American settlers who had been coming into the valley and tensions over land and access to resources were really escalating. And Pinhook Valley is um, just kind of at the base of the LaSalle's, kind of where Castle Valley heads up to the LaSalle Mountains. And that was the site of a violent, deadly armed conflict between um, those two groups of people. And oral history, uh, local legend has um, long held that William Grandstaff had supplied the native people with alcohol and Tensions were really high between native people and settlers of this region, and it's it's always been uh, re- recorded in books and in oral histories from um, families around that time that uh, Grandstaff was kind of run out of town by settlers around that time mm-hmm. due to his um, involvement um, kind of with that dynamic. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, one of the things that I am, um, that, that I think of whenever, whenever I'm, you know, thinking about this, uh, part of the story is a lot of the settlers, just like I was just talking about a lot of these cowboys and settlers, they were, they were civil war veterans, you know, mm-hmm. we're looking at, uh, you know, this is 1881, you know, this is not too far after the civil war mm-hmm. and a lot of these Confederate, um, veterans, uh, lost a lot of friends and even family members in the Civil War. So if you have a lot of these Confederates out here, <laughs> they probably, maybe we can assume that they didn't like him already, you know. Um, but then, you know, after, like, let's say he does leave right after the Pinhook Battle of 1881, uh, that could have been a huge reason, you know, um, right there. Um, and I did hear of a uh, story of somebody finding him in Colorado. One of his friends from Moab found him in Colorado and asked him why he left. Now, this is just an oral story that's been passed down. So we're unsure if this is 100% truth, but this is just sort of like 
what has been heard and said. But he said that he decided to leave because he was afraid after the Pinhook Battle of 1881 that arms were going to be taken up against him. So he decided mm-hmm. to to leave to save his own life. Um, once again, unsure if that is fact <laughs> or if that is just part of the lore of Grandstaff, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. And the the rumors or the allegations of anything that happened in 1881 are really hard to refute or yeah. substantiate this far later. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's still really, really interesting stuff to chew on and an interesting dynamic to consider what that would be like as for a black cowboy and black settler of this region to be mm-hmm. navigating really intense, escalated um, social conditions here in Moab um, mm-hmm. and whether or not he was doing things that could have provoked some anger response or whether right. it was racism. And again, you know, the mm-hmm. truth is probably probably somewhere in the middle. Um, right. Typically typically the case and even if we don't get to to know for sure to travel back in time and have a conversation with him and have a conversation with others um it's still really really interesting stuff to chew on as Mm -hmm. we think about our identity as a town and as a as a country um how these dynamics were have been unfolding Mm -hmm. yeah so, so what other stuff do you have for us? Uh, so we've got some possibilities of some documented stuff from Colorado after Grandstaff leaves Moab in 1881. Indeed, yes. Um, the chapter of William Grandstaff's life after leaving Moab is really the most well-documented chapter that we have on his life. Basically, he ended up in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, which um, is a a lovely little canyon um, and a a mining town around the time that he was there. We have land records from um, him owning property out there. He owned a hot spring in the South Canyon. He also um, reportedly ran the Grandstaff Landing Saloon um uh which sounds like a a great wild west uh (laughs) sort of establishment um a saloon in a mining town in colorado in the late 1800s sounds like a lot of fun perfect um so he did that um he also had a number of mining claims um he lived up on red mountain um which is pretty visible from from town if you're ever driving through it's the big red mountain Mm -hmm. and um there's also it seems that he also got remarried there uh we haven't been able to locate a marriage certificate but uh rebecca grandstaff is listed as a co-owner on some of his property um so Really, really a variety of records. He also, um, there's a newspaper article listing his candidacy. He was running for constable um, in the area. Um, So kind of neat to see. There's a real collage of records from his time in Colorado that kind of paint the picture of a pretty vibrant 
life. I mean, he yes. never struck it rich mining, but he was buying and selling land, um, dabbling in different things. I mean, if you look back on his resume, he really has like a a classic Wild West resume. You know, yeah. he, he ran cattle in Utah and then he had a saloon and then he was mining. It's like a, a trifecta of Absolutely. Um, frontiersmen yeah. vocations. It sounds like he was doing pretty good, though. <laughs> it I seems mean, like you're owning a saloon and a hot spring. That's that's a win. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's a win. <laughs> um, that's that's awesome, though. You know, th- and these are, you know, these are like new discoveries that we're just not like, like this part. Like I'm just learning all this, and this is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. There's a a couple of. Um... Moab histories that have have made reference to to this chapter a bit in the past, and um, I've also been grateful for the collaboration of Sharon Holler at the um, Historical Society mm. in Glenwood Springs, who's um, helped with some of these records, and he's kind of been a a man of mystery for for them as well in mm. that community um, as one of the early settlers and frontiersmen there um but i i really love um his obituary actually because he oh. dies in glenwood springs in 1901 and i mean all the other records we have of his life are like censuses and land sales and all these really sterile documents mm-hmm. that give us dates and facts and information but um the obituary is kind of the most um kind of telling telling portrait into his life and who he was as a person hmm. i've awesome. got yeah i've got You've a got little that? bit of it here okay, awesome um, i would lo- yeah if, uh, yeah yeah let's hear it i would love i'll to. just read a couple sentences from it sure. um the old man lived a solitary life on the top of the mountain where he had several mining claims, which he had been working for the past six or seven years. He was accustomed to making regular trips to this town for the purpose of obtaining fresh provisions and visiting his friends. And when his absence became prolonged, they became alarmed. And that's from the Avalanche Echo, which is a great name for a newspaper. Oh, absolutely. August 22nd, 1901. Wow, 1901. Yeah. Man, that's awesome! Like, yeah. I feel like that's, you know, just as you mentioned, that's such an like a very intimate piece that we have of him. And of all things, it would be his obituary. Yeah, it's like <laughs> <laughs> of all things. Um, but you know, I think, and you know, this is just kind of like one of those things that really makes our history here in Moab so rich, and interesting and because we've got you know so much in our history that is like documented fact you know everything you know written down there's photographic proof photographic evidence but then you know we've also got a lot of things in our in our history that has been a mystery for so long and it's really cool to start seeing some of these things like William Grandstaff um, start getting these new discoveries and stuff. And I feel like, I feel like we're, this is just sort of the, the tip of the iceberg here. I feel like we're going to be learning a lot more about grand stuff. I feel like hopefully maybe a photo is going to arise <laughs> of the man someday. That way we can, you know, get a good picture of him and, um, and, uh, just to put a face with the name. 
that is the dream. Uh, <laughs> I'll let you know if yeah. we ever, ever come across that. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, Grand Stuff Story, it's just adds such a rich variety to Moab's mm-hmm. understanding of itself. Yeah. And to, in so many ways, it's the quintessential Western story of this solitary man seeking opportunity, moving out West, doing all the Western things, mm-hmm. running cattle, mining, mm-hmm. having a saloon, seeking seeking opportunity. And in other ways, it defies what you expect because yeah. Grandstaff was black and he yeah. was born in slavery. Mm-hmm. And that is not the image that maybe comes to mind when you think of a cowboy and you think of a settler. But right. here's this guy who who was those things mm-hmm. and who has held a prominent place in this community's understanding of itself yeah. all these years later. Absolutely. And it's he has a legacy that lives on here in the in the canyon that so many people hike and mm-hmm. in Glenwood too. In Glenwood yeah. it's it's really cool actually. There's um when he died um the the people that went up to um like bury him and they they burned his little cabin as a health precaution um hmm. kind of a a thing of the times um but they installed this uh like makeshift tree cross um where he had lived um to memorialize him hmm. and uh years later the old tree cross wooden cross fell down um, and was replaced with a metal cross um, and illuminated with electricity from the nearby ski resort. Oh, nice. And there's still a cross up there on Red Mountain today wow. that gets, um, it's huge, and it gets uh, illuminated for like Christmas and a couple other prominent holidays. Yeah. Um, so kind of a landmark. Keep That's your awesome. Keep your eye out next time you're yeah. driving over to Denver. Oh, my gosh. Um yeah, you can see it way up there at night, and it's it's really neat yeah. to see like that <laughs> legacy living on in that community and in right. this community, and just how this man's story has um, kind of complicated our understanding mm-hmm. of our past. Right. Yeah. In a really neat way. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to. Uh, to hopefully find out more and more and more and more. <laughs> and, you know, it has uh, been such a, such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Um, uh, we've become good pals from, ske- from scheming stuff and, you know, uh, just nerding out over our history here. <laughs> and so. Thank you for having me, Blaine. Absolutely. It's yeah. a story we've been really excited to give more attention to at the museum and hope that folks might come visit and check the exhibit out we're open tuesday through saturday 10 to 6 come on by and take a peek it'll be up through early november okay awesome cool well thank you so much and thank you for tuning into the history hour and uh, tune in next month last monday 4 p.m right here on kzmu